Welcome back to Between the Levees. I'm joined today by Mr. Placito Maselli. I found him actually on Facebook many years ago when he worked for Turn Services in the risk and claims departments. I did not know much more about him uh, since then, but I have been keeping in touch on LinkedIn, as a matter of fact. Placito, thank you for hey, joining what's me. what's going on, Tim? Thanks for having me. I appreciate this. I'm glad you could join me here for sure. Well, We'll just get right to it. All these begin the very same way, sir. Where were you born? Libertyville, Illinois. Is this how you steal my social security information to buy a new boat? I knew it. Yeah, Libertyville, Illinois. Uh, right outside, probably 30 minutes north of Chicago. Okay. And what did your parents do for a living? My dad was a truck driver and my mom was in the restaurant business. So I kind of grew up around... Uh, uh, diners and bars and restaurants and then um, dad would come in on the weekends and everything doing otr work how long did your father drive uh probably for 10 years but uh my parents got divorced when i was really young and that brought us down to the mississippi gulf coast uh he still drove until that was while we were together but he still drove on and off until probably about five years ago well what was life how long were you in libertyville uh, till fourth grade. And then I came down to Mississippi in fourth grade. As you can tell from my accent, it's a very strong Mississippian dialect. Um, and then grew up there from Mississippi. And were you with mom or dad in Mississippi? Mom and uh, my sister and my mom was back in the restaurant business. And then uh, working over at one of the refineries in Pasco, Mississippi in the newspaper department. And then I, we were in school, and then I was a typical mall rat. Uh, my mom worked at a mall at a restaurant, and my sister worked at a uh, at a movie theater, and my best friend worked at the arcade. So that's kind of what my life revolved around growing up, going to school, then going hang out at the mall, getting free food, and then watching a movie, and then playing in the arcade. So wasn't that shabby. Were you drawn to anything in school? Um, leaving it. I was not the the most uh, studious of people there. Uh, I had fun. It was a great environment. Really good peers around me too. I didn't notice it then uh, uh, how little mentorship you have in some of the areas. Like I grew up in a very poor Southern environment, Gulf Coast of Mississippi, Gaucher, where everybody worked at a, a refinery. We called them Ingloids. Um, or the shipyard uh, Ingalls. And uh, school was great, but it never really clicked. I saw other people, some of them going on to college, but uh, I never really thought that that was going to be my full-time route. Did you end up in college? Yeah, I did. Oddly enough, um, one of my best friends, Amos, was uh, I dropped out of school, went to go work for Brown and Root Brown, uh, Brown and Root Brown as a pipe fitters apprentice. And one of my friends was going to uh, Perk, Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. And he was going on a band scholarship. And he's like, hey man, you want to tag along? I'm like, yeah, I'll tag along, let's go up there. And uh, oddly enough, they were looking for a band manager. I had no idea what a band manager did, but they're like, hey, you work hard, we'll give you a full ride. I'm like, all right, cool. So I went to, I, I jokingly say, I went to college uh, on a full ride band scholarship and have never, Picked up an instrument my entire life. Um, but I didn't take advantage of that, unfortunately. You did or did not? 
Did not. I did a, a year and a half and then the old habits came in. And then uh, I've always wanted to be in the Marines. I was kind of one of the goals. I had a lot of, all, all my family have been in the military in the lineage. And I was like, I'll join the Marine Corps. So that's what I ended up doing. Tell me about the transition from college to, uh, to boot camp. Uh, that was a big, big change. Uh, I went in boot camp as a little bit older. A lot of people were 17 and I was 19 when I went in. Um, so I, I saw a lot of young kids the coming straight from a house and never having lived on their own, um, whereas I had a couple of years to do that, to immediately going in boot camp and not understanding how to do things for themselves. But it was a, uh, a big culture shock uh, being in there. On the other hand, it was really good because I had a place to live. Uh, I had food every day. They gave me direction, which I was sorely lacking. So you get up at this time and you're going to go exercise for a few hours and go shoot some guns. And then you get to go to bed. I'm like, that's not a bad thing right there. And you're going to pay me not well. Uh, so the transition, I don't think was as bad for me as it was for some people. Um, absolutely loved it. And it uh, provided the best direction that I could have asked for. Well, tell me about boot camp rolling up onto those yellow footprints. Uh, I, we flew in from, from New Orleans. So I grew up in Mississippi and uh, the dividing line for boot camp is typically the Mississippi River. If you're east of the Mississippi River, you go to Paris Island. If you're west of it, you get to go to California. Um, I enlisted in Mississippi and went to Meps and Jackson. But when I came down, I went to some place here in New Orleans and they gave me the choice. Do you want to go West Coast or East Coast? I'm like, well, I've been to South Carolina and everything. So I've never been to California. Let's go to California. So I went out to California flew, landed in, an amazing experience, um, not knowing what's going on, basically blindfolded. And um, it's, it's broken down into, into three different cycles. Um, you have uh, the first, second, and third. And uh, I know they're not called cycles. It's been so long. And uh, it really, it breaks you down enough. I've never seen something so coordinated to be able to turn you into a team than reducing you to the most elemental form of of compliance and then going this is how we do things it's when we jokingly say things are done gumby style it really is that way it's a it's a clean slate learning now uh, it but uh that boot camp was a uh, fun i got to see a movie i got to see powder in uh boot camp so that was amazing i think that was our thanksgiving movie i missed christmas thanksgiving oh cool story we went in on Halloween and you go into these receiving barracks first. Everybody shows up and everybody's super nice to you, you know, except they cut your hair off really quickly. And if you've got a mole, you've got to put your finger on it. So if they do shave it, you don't cut the mole off. And then they put you in these receiving barracks. Super nice people. Amazing. But some people decide to come mess with you and it's Halloween. So they grab a recruit and put a sheet over them and cut eyes out and told him to walk to all the other platoons and go trick-or-treating. In hindsight, these were a couple of 24-year-old dudes just totally messing with another 19-year-old kid. And um, at the time, you're really worried. But as you get older, you're like, that was probably one of the funnest things that those 24-year-old kids have done in a while. Um, so it, it was a unique experience, to say the least. But again, missing Thanksgiving, missing Christmas, and New Year's was a, 
was not the, the most enjoyable. Well, fill me in on your Marine Corps career. How long were you in and what was your MOS? I was in four years, eight months, 15 days. My original MOS was a 2621, which is a Morris intercept operator. And so what that is, is uh, when you do your testing at MAPS, the military enlistment placement, I don't know what the S is, um, they do a little different things. Uh, one of them is D-Lab, Defense Lab, Defense Language Aptitude Battery Test. That's to pick up if you understand different languages easily. It's pictograms, and there's like 12 of them, and they make they have a fake language on it, and they make no sense. But the pictograms in each one of those scenes all have a common language or words. They're just gibberish. And so they're trying to see if your brain can match up to that and, and figure out what they're doing in there. And then there's um, another side of it. It's an audiometric side where they put these cans on your ears and they're basically trying to determine if you can understand um, rhythm, some specific things that are reoccurring. And if you can make, and if you can pick those out, how are they reoccurring? And um, I did really well on that portion of it. So I became a Morse intercept operator. I went to boot camp. And then in 1995, the most wonderful thing happened. Um, that was when Clinton shut down the government. And in um, intelligence fields, all your schools are blocked out. They only usually have a couple of year. And so because of that, they canceled the first school and I lost my 2621. And so I became a, I go to uh, MCT and I became a 4421, which is a legal service specialist, which is just like a glorified law clerk, uh, military justice, defense. And then I went to a MU. Um, 31st meal. I was in Okinawa from 95 or 96 to 2000. I was in uh, Camp Hansen in Okinawa. Best time of my life. And I got a text to the 31st meal with their staff judge advocate. So that's dealing with uh, rules of engagement, um, dealing with foreign nations and their rules of engagement, the laws going back and forth. A lot of it's making sure drunk Marines don't get in trouble off base or shoot the wildlife. That was a big one. Like when we went to Australia, had to warn them not to harass the wildlife. Um, and then from there, I was in Okinawa for my first, second year, and they do all these calls for different things um, because basically they're short of manpower. So a lot of people was like, they'll do calls for recon. They'll see people try to do in-dot. I'm not doing recon. There ain't no way that's happening. I'm, I'm a solid type B person. Um, but they had calls for um, counterintelligence, human specialists, and you had to have so much time left on your contract. I happen to have, because my contract was a five year, I had enough time. Um, so I started, I got sent and my, after my third year in Okinawa, I went to Camp Pendleton to First Shrig to go OJT with the people at First Shrig. And then at that time, so I've been gone from America from 96 to 99, just basically going from, it was amazing, going from South Korea to Australia. Uh, some of the most fun that I've ever had. Got shell backed. Um, and um, when I got back to uh, Camp Pendleton, California, my wife now of 21 years, she was my girlfriend then, she had a great job with Walmart Home Office in their IT department, and she came for the Marine Corps Ball, and uh, Marine Corps Ball is in November, I'm getting ready to re-enlist probably in January, and of course you see I am now in New Orleans versus traveling somewhere else in the world. No regrets, no regrets, but uh, it, it was an amazing, an amazing career, and it really provided me a lot of resources to where I'm at now. Anything interesting coming to mind from your time in Okinawa? 
dude, every, it was a lot of fun. Yes. So when I got to Okinawa, um, I love cars, still love cars, but the whole drifting thing wasn't big. I got there in June of 1996. Cars are super cheap over there. So the very first car I had was uh, this weird little uh, minivan that was wrecked on the side because basically when you get to base, Marines have to leave base. And so they'll sell you a car for 50 bucks because they can't take it with you. Half of them aren't even titled. Then my second car was a Nissan Skyline GTST. Went to the Kadena Lemon Lot, paid $5,000 for a tuned 1989 Nissan Skyline GTST, which over here would be you know, $30,000, $40,000 right now. And uh, we'd go drift. I didn't know anything about it. There were no TV shows about it, but we'd go to a couple places called Aja and Ijima and this old uh, cemetery behind Kadena. So that was a big thing. Um, I uh, married a Japanese woman um, and I've got a beautiful Okinawan daughter over there, Saika, um, which means beautiful flower. Uh, so that was pretty big happening in Okinawa. Uh, Facebook is a great way to continue uh, communicating too. Um, see, there, it, it was a lot of fun. So being with the Mew, you would be on ship for a couple months and then you'd come home for a month and then you know, you'd go out to Guam for like three weeks, four weeks, and then you'd come back. Um, so I, I got to do a lot of fun stuff um, being with the Mew that I don't think a lot of people got to, to be with, especially being with the command element where you get to stay with them full time. I know, too, you mentioned uh, Australia. I've got uh, a pretty devoted fan, a buddy of mine in Australia that actually appeared on my other podcast. He's got a lot of free time this week, and I think we'll be listening to this stuff. <laughs> tell me about the uh, the adventures in uh, in the Outback. Australia was amazing. So it's um, Tandem Thrust 97. It's uh, a joint operation between Australians, I think British, and American forces were with what's called the 7th ARG Amphibious Ready Group. And so the MU, the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit is part of that. In that, we've got several different types of vessels. We've got um, the USS New Orleans, um, which wasn't supposed to be there. She was mothballed in California, but our old ship, the USS Bellawood was stuck in, um, 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 mainland Japan because she got roaches. And so when a ship gets roaches, you have to tent the whole thing. So the New Orleans, they call the no boat. Are you going to have a good liber liberty? No. Are you going to go to a great place? No. It's called the no boat. Um, and it was built in, I think, the 60s. It almost sank coming to Hawaii. They pick us up in Okinawa and we get with our other ships, the Fort Max, um, Germantown, and some other ones. Now, the, the New Orleans looks like a mini aircraft carrier. It's made, made to carry AV-8Bs, the Harrier jump jets, um, CH-46s, you know, frogs, uh, different types of helicopters, um, um, and um, uh, amphibious assault uh, vehicles, uh, gators. So we're stuck in what's, we're, we're having fun going down there. And then all of a sudden, there's something called Super Typhoon Justin. So we're supposed to go to Kane's Carnes, Australia, which is like the Hollywood of Australia. We did not make it because we caught, caught up in a typhoon, which is one of the scariest moments in my freaking life. We have elevators where the ship, the planes go up and down up to the deck. Um, and those dipped in the water. Um, we lost the captain's launch. We lost a CH-46. Damaged. They weren't thrown overboard. A lot of stuff was damaged. A lot of injuries and stuff. 
So because of that, we lost a day of liberty and we had to go south to Townsville, Australia. I celebrated my 22nd birthday down there. So it was freaking amazing. Everybody talks about, hey, look, Australian men, they don't like Americans. Uh-uh. I got invited to so many barbecues. I partied with so many people. I didn't buy a drink the whole time I was there. Um, we stayed at this place that looked like a, a lipstick hotel. It was weirdly shaped. And then we jumped on a boat and went across to a place called Magnetic Island, which had an animal reserve on it. And everything was shut down because it was Easter weekend. But they opened it up for us. So I got pictures of us hanging out with koalas and wallabies and stuff like that. So that was an amazing time. Um, you know, I had kangaroo with uh, 4X beer for breakfast one morning, which was just friggin' insane. And then we get back on ship when we're leaving and you do what's called a manning of the rails. So the manning of the rails, the, when you go in, you're more formal. When you leave, it's less formal. We're in our camis. The sailors are in their, their blueberries, their, their dungarees and stuff. And you sit at parade rest while the ship is leaving the dock. And all of a sudden running from the dock, it's a young lady going, Johnny, Johnny, please don't go. And so we're all like, who's Johnny? And everybody's raising their hand. Everybody's Johnny on the boat. So uh, it, it, it was a fun time. It was a fun time. Any other highlights of your time in the, in the Marine Corps? Uh, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, I've been to Thailand a few times, Guam, more times to remember all over California, North and South Carolina. So I've got I've gotten a lot do a lot of things. So I, I think the best thing was um, when I was getting out. I, I again going back to the mentorship. I didn't understand what a mentor was, um, and I had a um, adjutant. He was a, a first lieutenant who was enlisted who mustanged over to officer side. So he was a sergeant, and then he wanted to become an officer and went to school got his degree, became um, an officer. And I didn't have any dress blues, so I bought his old dress blues for me. But I didn't realize at the time he was giving me all these kind of instructions on how I should behave as not only a Marine, but as a young man and as a professional. And I didn't realize what he was doing was trying to mentor me, like taking me aside, talking about finances, things that I didn't know anything about, talking to me about relationships, talking about how I should interact with coworkers, not in a very formal way, but giving me guidance. And that, not until much later on did I learn that that's what a, a mentor should be doing. And uh, so I think that was one of the bright spots that came out of the Marine Corps is, is understanding that. Well, moving forward. So you get out of the Marine Corps, what happens next for you? I got the Marine Corps. Um, I go up to Bentonville, Arkansas. My wife is a manager of Walmart's IT department. And then um, she gets a job and we want to move back to the coast. And so she gets a job as an IT manager for East Jeff Hospital. And I come down and I become a paralegal down here. So I start doing insurance defense. Um, so it would be working for like property and casualty insurance. So if somebody sues a business, uh, the business would hire a law firm. I'd be the paralegal. I would help with that. Did that for a while. Then I got uh, mixed in doing some mass tort, which are led um, large class action lawsuits. And then um, from there, I got a job with a company called Crawford and Company that kind of uh, uh, opened the world up to me 
uh, because it was an accident investigating and claims role. So I would, I was more of an outside adjuster than I'd ever been uh, versus sitting at a desk. And so I was going out to shipyards, I was going out to vessels, I was going to grocery stores, I was seeing 18 wheelers and doing accident investigations on those. Um, I remember having one fund where 18 wheeler full of gambling machines shut down and state police or state gaming commission had to be there to watch the transfer, of, which I had to be out there for like nine hours from one 18 wheeler to another. Um, and then uh, a lot, a lot of stuff with energy entered you as one of my big clients, averaging about a fatality a week. So my, my career kind of progressed in the investigatory fashion going from, you know, I'm, I'm helping defend a lawsuit to I'm investigating a lawsuit. And then I'm now working in claims. I go to an insurance carrier and with the insurance carrier, uh, that was again outside, but that was specifically dealing with high hazard stuff, loggers. And that's when I started going out on the river a ton. So I started looking at a lot of inland marine. That was my true first taste of inland marine. And Someone, I always joke about myself being office trash, but that's what I am. And coming from that world and, and from an office world and then going out on the river, it just automatically put me back in that cool mode of Marine Corps buddies. And the reason why I say that is it's a whole different world. Everybody in there has a very specific niche job or career path that you're not going to find anywhere else. People talk about truck drivers. Truck drivers can get on any highway, but, but people in the maritime world can only work on those rivers or a lake. And I, I saw the way these people interact, and I'm like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. And I got to start doing more and more and more of that stuff as my career progressed. So a lot of it was uh, on the insurance, which a lot of people don't understand how it works, uh, like when a deckhand gets hurt. How do you handle that? How do you mitigate that? What is the safety and compliance issues behind that? And uh, so that's kind of where that went. It was your next stop with Turn Services? Yeah, um, I was working uh, four years at a company. I was having a blast, but I was on the road a ton. And turn, uh, Jim Harrington with Turn Services put an ad on Craigslist for a claims manager. I'm like, well, I like dealing with that. This is maritime, no claims. So why don't I see if I can get on with an operator? And I got on is when they're at their old Royal Street office. It was uh, Jim and Tim Morton and uh, Frank was still in the office. Um, um, Marcel, yeah, it was a good group of people out there. Um, and then that just kind of progressed. There were not a ton of boats. They had a good number of boats, I think eight or nine at that time. And it was a perfect time to come in because Tim and Jim were building this, this whole department out, again, office trash, building this whole department out. And it was the incipient time where you can define what you want. But for someone who isn't out there doing these things every single day and hasn't had a career behind them of, hey, look, you know, snatching wires or anything like that, it provided me, you've got to go out and see everything that goes on. So it was an amazing crash course of working on a boat, watching how deckhands and captains operate and how they interact together, walking, seeing how dispatch and possibly logistics works together. So all those interactions, and uh, I fell in love with it. It was, um, 
it was, there's a lot of stories that you can't tell. Um, and I never will, but it was, it was probably one of the greatest culminations of a career. I absolutely love my career now, but that opportunity was really defining. Aside from the uh, maybe reflections of, of Marine Corps life, um, what was most surprising or what most drew you to this, this little industry we're in? Um, I think that there, I joke, I'm a AVP now. I've got a GED certificate up on my wall. And I joke that I went from GED to AVP. Not a lot of industries will offer you the chances that the maritime industry will. They just won't. When I first started at Turn Services, um, Jim took me down to um, Mira, or to uh, Myrtle Grove Fleet down in the van. And I meet a gentleman named 21. And we were all joking. And why is he called 21? Well, apparently 21 served 21 years at Angola for manslaughter. I'm like, oh, probably nobody else would give this man another opportunity. Older gentleman who had a hitchhike every day from almost the West Bank down to Myrtle Grove to go work as a barge washer and then go back. The work ethic there and the opportunity that an employer would give them. I've seen deckhands and captains from every walk of life that probably would have gotten turned down from many other quote unquote normal positions, but the river saw an opportunity in them and they excelled there. And um, so, you know, it's like the island of misfit toys, one might say, but it, it, and I think that's kind of going away now that you've seen families evolve and age. There used to be the, the generations of families, they're still there, but those kids have left to go and pursue other things. So I think a lot of that tradition and history is dying off, but I still think the opportunity for anybody who wants to go out and work can excel in this, this industry. And that's the great thing about it. That'll be a nice clip to publish separate, <laughs> uh, publish by itself ahead of time. But um, <laughs> so what prompted your departure from the industry? Um, I was given a really good opportunity, um, uh, not financial, but it was to run a claim shop. I thought I wanted, I loved being on the river, but it was, again, it was going back to the 24 seven. And I spent so many vacations and times away and that's part of it. You know, safety is kind of like what a dispatch is, you know, it's, it's a 24 seven operation because things happen in turn associated with 24 seven. I was given the opportunity to run a large property and casualty claim shop, I have several adjusters underneath me, and I took it. And I was in that office, great company. I was in that office for about six months before I realized, no, man, I don't care if this is just nine to five and I can turn off when I go home and turn off when I eight to five. When I come back in the office, I miss it. I miss being out there. Um, I miss the field. And so an opportunity came up with the current company that I'm at now. And I've been there for um, a little over three years now. Now, the operator, the, the great thing about I'm with an insurance broker now. I'm an AVP senior risk consultant. And um, so my territory is Gulf South, but I'm an SME for maritime. So I deal with ports. I'm working on a $500 million port in Miami for Fink and Terry and MSC's new cruise line um, to smaller operators. I have some operators here in Southeast Louisiana that are my clients. 
So that still gives me the opportunity to see the industry again and apply all those things that I've learned, but with a lot of other people. And then allows me to learn about a lot of other industries out there within, um, within the maritime world. I didn't deal a lot with, oddly enough, um, food supply vessels. I deal with them all the time now, same risks, same hazards, then the same kind of people running them. And so I get to travel and see all those things. I think that'll just about do it for my questions, but sir, the stage is yours. Do you have a message for anybody out there that might be listening to this? Yeah, so there's probably two or three types of people listening to it. One, people there in the maritime industry, two, people that are thinking about the maritime industry, and three, people who just randomly downloaded this. For the people that are in it, you already know what it's about, and that's why you're in it. You love it. For the people who are on the fence who have never really thought about this, this is your opportunity to understand that the river is living. You know, it can support you, your family, and it supports the whole nation. So seriously, give it a chance. And the people that are randomly clicking through, go check out Tom Segura or Doug DeMiro. I really like them. I'm a big fan of Tom Segura. I haven't heard of, who's the second one? Doug DeMiro, he's a car guy. Okay. He's a, do you listen to uh, Between Two Caves? Or what is it? Um, Two Bears, One Cave. Two Bears, One Cave weekly, yes, sir. Oh, God, I just turned it on. And oh, my God, it's the most random, amazing thing in the world. Oh, I got nothing else. Well, that'll work. I thank you for your time. We'll keep in touch. All right, man. Take care. This has been a production of Where You At Studios, LLC.